You are listening to the Long Hollow Podcast. For more information on Long Hollow or to watch a video version of this podcast, visit www.longhollow.com. Amen. Good morning. I want to talk to you about when losing is gaining uh, from the book of Philippians. We're continuing our series through Philippians. And I want to talk about how you gain as a Christian when you lose. Now, if I were to ask you a question today, and the question is, give me one word to describe God. Just one word to describe God. What would you say? Holy. Love. What else? Audience participation. Mercy. Omniscient. Now, if you want to impress your friends, you go with that route, right? Omniscient. <laughs> omnipresent, right, uh, omnipotent, all-knowing, all all-powerful, all-present, right? Uh, you would say magnificent, you would say holy, you would say infinite, you would say creator of the universe. I would su- suggest, or, or I, w- I would uh, guess you would never use this word in describing God, humble, humble. And yet, that is the concept Paul is about to get across to us when he describes Jesus Christ. Now, what we're going to talk about today is I'm going to take you on a journey from eternity past, and we're going to start in heaven. We're going to go from heaven to the cradle in Bethlehem. We're going to go from the cradle to the cross on Calvary. Then we're going to ascend to the crown in heaven back again. It's going to take us about three hours to do that. So it's just going to be one long running sermon. Amen. So just pack a lunch. We're going to be here a while. And we're going to talk about the the, what's called the incarnation of Christ, which is basically God coming to earth, wrapping himself in human flesh on a rescue mission to save us from our sin. It's gonna take a long time to do it that way, or we can read Philippians chapter two and do it in 35 minutes. So if you have a Bible, that's what Paul does. If you have a Bible, I hope you do. Turn with me to Philippians chapter two, and we'll start in verse five. Paul is gonna give us the summation from the cradle to the cross to the crown in about five or six verses. So if you have a Bible and you're there, if you're at home, you can say word. The word of the Lord. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not think or consider equality with God as something to be exploited. One version says, or something to be grasped or attained. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. I wanna teach you about the posture of Christ and the reward he received for that posture. The first insight Paul's gonna share with us is this. Christ had a posture of humility. He had a posture of humility. Now, what attitude is Paul talking about when he says, have this attitude that is in Christ or have this mind that is in Christ? Now, we have to go back to the verses we studied last week. So last week in verses three and four, Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, that's kind of the theme here, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should not look to his own interest but rather to the interests of others. And if you think about it, that was the prototype for the life of Jesus, right? Jesus was always looking out for others. He modeled that for us. Now, it's easy for us who are raised in church to see Jesus only in his human form after Bethlehem. 
But the reality is we forget that Jesus existed before he came into existence. Now, it's gonna be hard to wrap our minds around this, so I need all the brain power and the tension for just a moment. And I wanna show you what Paul's trying to say with this one word, existed. This word existed in the Bible is a treasure trove of information that Paul's gonna get across. Now, Paul could have chose a past tense word describing something that existed previously. He could have chose that word, like a past tense. Jesus existed in the past, but he doesn't choose that verb. He actually chooses the present tense participle, which is actually this idea of something happening in the past, something continuing in the present and ongoing in the future. What Paul is trying to say to us today is this, Jesus always existed. He didn't come into existence. He didn't come to be in existence. Jesus always existed. Wrap your mind around this. Jesus existed before Bethlehem. Jesus existed before the exodus from Egypt. Jesus existed before Abraham himself was called to be the father of the nation. Jesus existed before anything was even created. In fact, Paul's trying to get this concept across to the church at Colossae when he writes in Colossians 1.16, for everything was created by him. Who's the him here? Jesus, God, but Jesus. In heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That means this, he created the first couple from the dust of the earth. He created the animals on the earth. He created the fish in the sea, he created the trees on the land. He put the stars in the sky. He flung the galaxies in the atmosphere and he spoke the world into existence. Jesus always existed. And that's why the Bible says he is the I am. He says, I am the great I am. Why? Because he always was, he always is, and he always will be. Now to silence the naysayers who had a hard time, like some today, how can Jesus pre-exist before he existed? And honestly, how could he do that as God? Paul's gonna choose one Greek word that's an interesting word. It's the Greek word morphe. We know it in English as form. You see it in the text. Though he existed in the form, you see it in your Bible, the form of God, the morphe of God, where we get metamorphosis but it's an idea of being of the same substance of something, L listen to me. It's being of the same value as something, to be of the same essence of something, to have the same quality as someone. The, the picture the, the mind of the audience would have had, particularly in Philippi, would have been that of a Roman leader. See, the Roman government, particularly Julius Caesar and Nero, they would actually endorse or affirm certain documents or letters by taking a signet ring that they would heat up, they would place the signet ring on the back of a letter inside of a piece of wax, and they would impress upon the wax, watch this, an exact replica or form of the ring, morphe. And it's interesting because that's the word Paul uses to describe Jesus being the exact replica of God. He is of the same essence. He is the same as God. Now look what he says in verse six. He was existing, present tense, in the form of God, but did not think equality with God as something 
to be exploited. Now, this word here, or this concept here, is a very debatable, deep concept in theology called, anybody know what this is called, by the way, for the Bible scholars in the room? Anybody know what this concept's called? The kenosis theory, right? You're probably saying, I don't care. I know you didn't, but I felt like you wanted to know. I don't know. Didn't tell the last service that, but I tell you. Okay, the kenosis theory. And here's this idea. This idea is that what Paul's trying to get across is that even though Jesus was God and had divinity and every right to assume that, he did not take advantage of that. He did not exploit that. He didn't use his own oneness with the Father for his own interests to propagate his own agenda in and of himself. He always did, he said, what the Father told him. He always spoke when the Father spoke to him. Now, the key word emptying is the confusing word because we like to think the word emptying means to remove the divine attributes of someone by subtracting from them. The problem with that form of emptying is if Jesus subtracted his divinity, he ceases to be God. Like there's never a time in the Bible where we read Jesus is not 100% God and 100% man at the same time. Is anybody's head hurting yet? I'm just getting started, <laughs> right? So if that would have happened, then he would cease to be God. So emptying here is a metaphor that Paul uses, emptying or, 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 or exploiting, he didn't, empty himself to exploit. He's using this idea to talk about submission. Jesus willingly submitted to the Father. He relied on God for everything. And how did he do this? By taking on the form or assuming the form of a servant. Now this is mind blowing. Because just the fact that God humbled himself to come as a man is one thing. And just the fact that he was yelled at and blasphemed is another thing. But to be a servant is the furthest thing of humiliation, why? Because the word servant here is a bond servant, different than slave. The bond servant is the lowest of low in the Roman economy. This is a person who has no rights, but follows the rights of the master. And Jesus is described as a servant, a bond servant. What does that show us? That, here's what I like to say. Jesus relinquished his heavenly prerogative to become our savior. But Jesus's humility doesn't stop at his life, as crazy, as overwhelming as that can be. It actually goes to his death. Wrap your mind around this. The one who created life is gonna give up his life willingly. He willingly dies on a cross. Now, this is not an immediate death, you have to understand. This is a long, agonizing, torturous death. He's going through pain. His joints are dislocated. His flesh was destroyed. His muscles are shredded. He's made to wear a crown of thorns on his head. He, he's thrusted with a spear through his side. His back bears the whip marks from the cat of nine tails on his back. His hands are pierced with nails and his feet are pierced with nails. You gotta understand something. Jesus did all of this, not because he was coerced, but because he wanted to. This is a willing submission to the Father. Let me say it this way, I want you to get this. Jesus humbled himself, no one humbled him. Jesus was not humbled, Jesus humbled himself. Why? Because there's no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth that can humble him. 
This is something he willingly chose to do and to really heighten the drama. You ready for this? Jesus was the one who knit the hands of the men who would crucify him. Jesus gave the breath to the crowd who would blaspheme him. Jesus gave authority to the men in Jerusalem who would crucify him. He even formed the tree that he would hang on and the tomb he would lie in. I can't think, Long Hollow, of any greater humility than that, right? That the one who created everything willingly submitted himself to be a man. The creator becomes the created. But not only that, he lives and dies. But the thing that blows me away is that he suffers. Now, just a sidebar here. If understanding this is important, it's important for one thing. It shows us why God hates pride. Why? Because it goes against the very nature of who he is. Friends, when you and I are prideful, and believe me, I've got a degree in it. <laughs> when you and I are prideful, what happens is it's as if we stiff arm God. It's like repelling God. God, I don't need you and I don't want you. That's what we say without saying when we're prideful or arrogant or take credit for something that, that is the Lord's. See, but the suffering is the part I, I can't wrap my mind around. Like I, I can understand living and dying, but why so much suffering? You ever thought about that? Why do they have to suffer so bad? You know, this is the problem a lot of people have, particularly unbelievers with believing in, in Jesus. They'll say, well, I mean, really, how can I believe in a God who, a good God who lets evil and suffering progress? I mean, how can, you ever heard this before? Like, how can an all-knowing, all-powerful God allow suffering to still happen in the world? I hear this from time to time. And my response to them is, you probably have not read this text that we're studying today. Because this text is the answer to suffering. It's actually the explanation of suffering. Let's just follow that logic for a moment. Let's say for a moment, God were to stamp out all evil and all suffering from the world. Let's say he does away with it. Every lie that's ever been told, gone. Every hate, hate, hatred or hate, uh, hatred toward another person, gone. Uh, every selfish act, gone. Every sinful deed, gone. Every sin in the world is completely removed. The question is, if God removed evil and suffering, who in this room would still be here? Right? I know I wouldn't. So God doesn't remove suffering. Here's what's interesting. The same God who allows suffering also endured suffering so that we can understand that it has meaning. See, God didn't avoid suffering with his son. Get this. He stepped into the suffering and absorbed our suffering so we wouldn't have to for eternity. So God doesn't, listen, God doesn't turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to suffering. He actually does something about it. And this is what separates Jesus from every other religious figure on the planet or anybody who has worshiped a false God. This is the difference. Jesus Christ gives hope in suffering. Why? Because without the cross, don't miss this, suffering does not make sense. So when someone says, how much does God care about suffering? You know what you say? You point to the cross and you say, that much. That's how much he cares about suffering. Because he willingly suffered for us. The father did not spare his own son from suffering so that we would not have to endure it. 
I don't know if you know what that means, but I want you to imagine a savior who's never suffered. <laughs> I want you to imagine a God who does not understand your pain. Think about that. Aren't you glad that because Jesus stepped into suffering, he can step into our pain with us? See, you gotta realize this. Jesus knows what it's like, look at me, to lose someone you love. When he wept outside the tomb of Lazarus, his best friend. And some of you know what that's like because right now you're having a hard time with the loss of a family member. Maybe it's a mom or, or a dad you lost in the last year or two. Maybe it's a brother or a sister or a spouse. Maybe it's a child you lost prematurely or even a child in the womb. Jesus understands your suffering. He knows what it's like to have a friend stab you in the back. He knows what it's like for your family to question your motives. He knows what it's like to be deserted by people you love and give your life for. He knows what it's like to live without a parent. Scholars believe that Joseph died when Jesus was either a teenager or in his early 20s. We know he's not there when he starts his ministry. Jesus knows what it's like to lose a father or a family member prematurely. He also knows what it's like to be continually tempted mercilessly. And aren't you glad that whatever you're going through, he knows how you feel today. How do I know that? Hebrews chapter four, verse 15, watch this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, in our pain, in our suffering, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. See, because Jesus adopted a posture of humility, God rewarded him and exalted him with honor. So because he hum see, here's the reality. Here's how the kingdom of heaven works. Either you willingly humble yourself and let God exalt you, or you can exalt yourself and watch God humble you. I mean, Jesus is gonna live this, and Paul explains it. Look at this in verse Nine, for this reason, because he humbled himself, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess, confess just means agree with, will agree that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, all through the Bible, what you know or what you see is there is a constant contrast between pride and humility. That's the Bible. You just follow it from the beginning. Those who humbled themselves before God, it went well for them. Those who were arrogant and prideful, it didn't go so good for them. And there's a constant battle. There's also a picture in the Bible that is, a, that is really two opposite examples, one of Satan, one of Jesus, one of Lucifer, one of Jesus, and I'll show it to you. For those who don't know, you've heard this before, where did Satan fall? Where does the Bible talk about Satan who was an angel of light, Lucifer and, you know, led the choir? Where did he fall in the Bible? Well, the answer is, write this down, Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14. This is the picture of the Old Testament of when Satan fell. Now, Jesus says in the New Testament, he actually was there when he saw Satan fall. This is the explanation of it here. Now watch this. You said to yourself, Satan, now watch this. I will ascend to the heavens. I will set my throne above the stars of God. 
I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I want you to notice the hubris in this text. I want you to notice the arrogance in this text. How many times do we see the phrase, I will? You see, I mean, it's over and over. I will, I will, I will, I will. I will. He just says over and over. Now, the next text right after this, verse 15, tells us the destiny of Satan for being so arrogant and prideful. Verse 15, but you will be brought down, God says, to Sheol, the place of the dead, into the deepest regions of the pit. So if you exalt yourself, I will humble you. Now, the contrast is Jesus, who we just studied, and it says Jesus humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men. And because he did this, God highly exalted him. Here's the contrast. Don't miss this. Satan said, I will. Jesus said, not my will, but thy will. And because of that, God exalted him. Now, why is that important? Because if you study the gospels, you realize that the entire time Jesus was on the earth, he was despised. They mocked him, they spit on him, they made fun of him, they blasphemed him, they called him a friend of sinners. But the Bible is clear on one day in the future, hopefully sooner than later, and I believe it is sooner than later, Jesus Christ is coming back for recompense. Jesus Christ is coming back to make all wrong right. And he's gonna do it in such a way in three areas. Paul says in heaven, you know what that means? Heaven, right? Yes, it's in heaven. Well, who's in heaven? The angels are in heaven. And all of our family members and friends who are believers and surrender their life to Christ before they pass. So in heaven, all of them will say, Jesus is Lord. But also those on earth. So we don't know when Christ is coming back, but we hope it's soon, amen? And when he comes, if you're still on earth, if we're still here, believers and unbelievers, saved and unsaved, will confess and bow the knee that Jesus is Lord. But he also says those in the underworld, the abyss under the earth, this is Satan, these are the demons, and all the unbelievers who are awaiting judgment. What that means is this, every single person who has ever walked on the planet and every spiritual being in the heavens above and below will confess Jesus as Lord. What that means is King Herod will confess Jesus as Lord. Nero, that crazy bipolar king of Rome, he will confess Jesus as Lord. Julius Caesar will bow the knee and confess Jesus as Lord. Every king since then, Hitler and Stalin, Obama and Trump, Biden and Putin, and every other world leader will bow down and confess Jesus as Lord and God. Also, every unbeliever, as well as every power and principality, every dominion and every demon will bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, here's the point. Today, get this, today we worship God freely, freely meaning we have a choice whether we will bow the knee and confess Jesus as Lord. But in the future, the Bible says there will be no choice. It will be a mandate. Every human being and every spirit will confess Jesus as Lord. What that means is there are no atheists nor agnostics in hell. Did you know that? Atheist means there's no God. I don't believe there's a God. Agnostic means There is a God, but I don't know who he is. In hell, everybody's a believer of who Jesus said he was and what he came to do. 
Now, this is very sobering, and I want to just get to a point of, uh, of, of decision for you right now. This is very sobering. I want you to get this. Before you were born, you, I'm talking about you. Before you were born, God set a date on the calendar in eternity past of a future time when you will stand face to face before Jesus Christ. You talk about sobering. This date is unavoidable, it is inevitable, and it is inescapable. And I believe Jesus is coming sooner than later. I really, if you don't believe me, just look at what's happening today. We're saying, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come, right? The Bible says in Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed, mean destined. I know this will make you uncomfortable. It is predestined, make you uncomfortable. Planned, let me make it softer. It is planned for people to die once and after that death, judgment. See, the Bible says one day that those nail-pierced feet are gonna touch down on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. And that point, your destiny in eternity will be sealed by the decision you made for Christ while on earth or the lack thereof. I know what you're thinking. Well, Pastor Robbie, I didn't come prepared today to make a decision to follow Jesus. I get that. But to not make a decision is to make a decision which is to reject Jesus for eternity. And the Bible promises you'll spend eternity in a Christless place called hell. But friends, here's the good news. Jesus said, if anyone confesses with their mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And you're saying anyone? Yeah, anyone. Anyone, including me. In six days, will mark the 20 year anniversary that I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. It's unbelievable, yeah, I mean, unbelievable. I mean, I remember, I was thinking, thinking about it this week. I remember the day in my room, not in a revival, not in a church service, not a dad who was a pastor. I was in my room and I remember it like it was, remember the day you got saved, anybody remember that? I mean, it's like yesterday for me. And let me just tell you, like leading up to that day, you may think, well, man, you, you, you had a, you know, you, you, it was a radical experience for you. That was good, but that didn't happen for me. Well, here's kind of the backstory. I was actually raised in a religious family, meaning we went to church every Sunday. I was in a private school since I was young. We learned about the Lord. We learned, we, had, we, we studied the Bible. I took classes in the Bible. I went to a Christian college where I actually had uh, lectures on theology and doctrine. Uh, I, when I got in trouble, I mean, I knew like you who to pray to. I prayed to God every time I got in trouble. I knew that, right? Uh, went to church on Christmas and Easter. I definitely was there for that. And I sat in church services like you do every single week and heard messages just like this. But on November 12, 2002, I knew that I didn't know Jesus. Or better yet, I knew Jesus didn't know me intimately. Now he knew who I was and I knew who he was, but I didn't have a personal, intimate relationship with him. And you know what the difference was for me? And this is what made the difference. What kept me from admitting that was pride. It was pride. And maybe that's what is keeping you from doing the same today. You know, I can't imagine, as I think back over the last 20 years, I can't imagine my life 
separate and apart from surrendering it to Christ. I probably wouldn't be here, honestly. I mean, God's done so many things in the last 20 years, but the bigger question for you is, what could God do in your life? Look at me. If you got serious with him today and surrendered your life, what could he do in the next 20 years of your life? Here's what I know. I find that the longer a person comes to church services like this or the older they get, the harder it is for them to admit and humble themselves to say, I'm not following Jesus like I should. Pastor, I haven't surrendered my life to Christ. Let me ask you, has pride kept you from responding to Jesus? His pride kept you from going all into, but you don't understand, I'm a deacon at our church. If anybody knew, I haven't fully surrendered. I teach a life group here at Long Hill. I've been coming here for 20 years. I get that. But friends, you have to understand, the reason Jesus humbly left the throne of heaven, the reason Jesus came to the cradle, the reason Jesus went to the cross, the reason Jesus willingly received punishment and suffering and blaspheming messages from people against God is so that you and I would have life and life abundantly. And here's the appeal. If Jesus was willing to humble himself to come from heaven to earth, to endure death and to go back for our sake, how dare we not humble ourselves today before him? Here's what I know. You will either bow the knee to Jesus today willingly. Everybody has the choice today to bow the knee to him willingly as Savior and Lord. Or you're going to bow the knee to him tomorrow as Lord and judge. But everybody in here is going to bow the knee one day. And there's no better time than to do it now. You know, the Bible says, if you hear the voice of the Lord, don't harden your heart. The Bible says, today is the day of what? You've heard this. Salvation. Today is the day of salvation. So I wanna pray over you in just a moment. I can't think of a better way to respond and to be unashamed and to be bold and not not worry about what people think or your pride or your arrogance than to, watch this, than to follow through with believer's baptism. Listen, the stories I've heard this morning, the brother who hugged me before he got in, he said, I'm from Pennsylvania. He said, I I come in town from time to time, the long holiday to worship, I watch online. He said, I have put this off for 15 years, but today is the day. Amen? Amen? So listen, so listen, I know because I know, I know you because I know me. I know I put my baptism off for a while too. I know in a group this size, there are some who are saying, man, you just, you just read my mail, pastor. That's me, that's me. I was sprinkled as a child like you, as a Catholic or a Methodist or a Presbyterian. And uh, I, I didn't come to faith in Christ till later. And I have stiff armed the Lord with my pride, but today I'm gonna humble myself and respond. Friends, the first step of obedience the Bible says is following through with believer's baptism. To go under the water is a wonderful picture of the death of Christ and to be raised back to life again to show the resurrection of Jesus. Or maybe you were raised in church here at Long Hollow or a church and you walked an aisle and got wet in a tank maybe after that, but you haven't followed the Lord. But today, the Lord has struck a chord. He's spoken to your heart. And you're saying, Pastor, I need to get my baptism on the right side of my salvation. 
And so I'm gonna invite you in just a moment. I'm gonna pray over you, invite you to come forward for baptism. I know what you're thinking. Well, Pastor Robbie, I didn't come prepared to be baptized today. I get that, but we are. We're prepared, I promise you. And I promise you this will be the single spiritual marker day outside of your salvation you will remember for the rest of your life. Anybody amen to that? The rest of your life. So I'm gonna pray over you now, and I just want you to get alone with the Lord. And I want you to let the Lord speak to you. Is God speaking to you about your baptism? We've already seen many people already come. The Lord's speaking to you now. Would you just simply, and and this is your response. You don't have to say a word, no one looking around but me. This is between you and the Lord. I'm gonna ask you to put your pride aside, young man brother, I'm going to ask you to be bold. I'm going to ask you to lead by example, sister. And if God is speaking to you and you're saying you're speaking right to me, would you just slip your hand up right where you are? Just slip it up. And in slipping up, you're saying, Pastor Ravi, I'm following Jesus and I'm going all in. I'm going to follow through with baptism today. I'm going to put it on the right side of my salvation, right where you are. Would you just slip your hand up? Pastor Ravi, pray for me. Pray for me. Amen. Pray for me. Right where you are. Just say, extend it high so I can see you. Praise God. Thank you, sister. Is there another? Thank you, sister. Hey, you've run for far too long. Today's the day. Would you just slip it up just a moment longer? If you're in the balcony, thank you, sister, in the back. Anyone else? Pastor Rami, pray for me. Thank you, brother. Pray for me. I need to make it right. I was sprinkled just like you as a, as a baby and I haven't followed through with believer's baptism, but I'm ready to go all in for Jesus. If that's your prayer, just a moment longer. Anyone else, would you just slip your hand up so I can pray over you? Thank you, brother. Praise God. Others have already done it, so it's pretty easy at this point. Just slip your hand up. Pastor Ravi, thank you, sister. Is there another? Pastor Ravi, pray over me, please. Amen. Thank you, brother. Is there another? If you raised your hand at any point, would you just raise it one more time so I can see you and no one looking but those who've raised hand. Just raise it high so I can see for just a moment. Praise God, just raise it high. If your hand is raised, would you just look at me for a moment? If you're in the balcony or in the back, just look at me. Praise God. Hey, you know what I know about this? And I don't know you personally, but here's what I know. I know a lot of prayers have gone into this moment. For you particularly, I know that. You know how I know? Because that's what was said about me. And I know this is a big decision. It's not easy, but I promise you, your obedience, God will honor that today in your life. So here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. Right now, our pastors are right over here, our Next Steps area, Brother Danny. uh, Pastor Danny is over here to my left. I'm gonna ask you just, if you're looking at me, would you just step out of your seat? You can grab your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or your girlfriend, just make your way over here. And here's the cool thing. I'm gonna have the privilege to share in the moment with you in just a moment, just like I have already uh, with those this morning. And I'm gonna ask you right where you are, just stand where you are, others are coming. So you just come, if you're in the balcony, uh, you guys just come on down. If you're in the back, we're gonna praise God. Thank you, sister, you come, don't miss this. Praise God, they'll let you out of the row, I promise you promise you. They'll get up and let you out. Praise God. Anyone else, you come this morning. Amen. Amen. It's a big deal here. Amen. 
you just make your way over here. Praise God. We're going to transition into a time of the Lord's Supper. And um, what a great opportunity for us to, to really partake of the Lord's Supper, knowing what we just learned about Christ. And so I want to just read, if you came in, you got one of these cups right here. The Bible says, before we partake of the Lord's Supper, it's important for us to examine our own life and to ask the Lord if there's anything in us that we need to confess, any unconfessed sin in our life. And so uh, obviously if you're here today and you're an unbeliever, we're grateful you're here, but we're gonna ask you to, to resist the, the, the urge to wanna partake of this. Why? Because this is a, the Bible says, a kind of a family opportunity for us as believers to partake of the Lord's Supper. And so we're glad you're here, but the Bible says if you take it, you bring condemnation on yourself, 1 Corinthians 11. So, but if you're here, we all can examine our hearts. So I want you to just spend a moment asking the Lord, is there anything in my life I need to confess? Any sin that would hinder me walking intimately with you? Any disobedience in my life? Maybe a sin of commission, things you've done, or a sin of omission, things you haven't done that you know you should have done. Just ask the Lord to reveal that. And if he does, just confess it to him. The Bible says at the Last Supper, and you can peel the top part off, just the top part, and you can take the wafer. The Bible says at the Last Supper, Jesus took the bread. It was, it was bread they were used to. They had, they had partaken of this bread before. It was a picture of the man of the Old Testament from the Exodus. But Jesus is going to redefine uh, this festival for them. And he takes the bread and he breaks the bread. And he says, this is my body. Now, they have no clue what I just told you about because it hadn't happened yet. But they will very soon. And we on this side of the cross know what Jesus has done for us. So this means so much to us today. He said, this is my body. Do this or partake of this in memory of me. Let's pray as we go to the Lord today. Jesus, we thank you for the blood. We thank you for the body that was given for our behalf. And God, as we think about what was done to you and even coming to be a human is an amazing form of humility, but going to a cross and suffering and dying on our behalf, we can't wrap our finite minds around it. But we do trust God. And we do thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for dying on our behalf. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible says Jesus then takes the cup he says, this is the cup of a new covenant with you. And he says, this is my blood. When you drink of it, do this in memory of me. And so let's thank the Lord for the blood. Father, we thank you. We know the blood covers our sin. We know it's uh, from the Old Testament, God. And we're grateful today that we don't have to go to a temple, to a place, to sacrifice goats or lambs to cover for our sin, which can't be taken away anyway forever. But we trust in a Savior who went to a cross 
and spilled out his blood on our behalf. And we celebrate that today. And we don't know what else to say except thank you, Jesus. Say, say that with me. Thank you, Jesus. Say, say it again. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for dying on our behalf, for living a life we couldn't live, for dying a death we deserve and giving us a salvation we didn't earn. We say thank you, Jesus. We ask it in your name.